0: We are starting though with a bit of a cautionary tale and we're not talking about flying and getting stuck somewhere because of a storm or because of perhaps some other reason that is out of your hands. This is the case of buying a ticket but then being told there is no seat on the plane for you. It happened to a woman who flew here from Edmonton and Holly Simmons-Brown joins us now to talk more about how this all unfolded. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi. Thanks. So this is a, a bit of an odd situation you are having with trying to get on a flight. Tell us what happened.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I am trying to go home to Edmonton. I uh, I'm, I was here just briefly this week, and so my flight is supposed to be leaving around seven, return flight, and um, tonight. And so I went and booked my checked in last night and online, and I noticed I, that I didn't. Didn't say I could pick a seat, and then when my boarding pass was issued, it said "standby" (SBY) on it, which seemed weird. So I um, got a hold of Air Canada finally today, this morning, to ask them what this meant, and they said that I am standby for the flight. Uh, I said, "Are there are there seats open?" They said, "There's a couple," and I maybe could count on the fact that there might be some no shows, and then I would be lucky enough to get a seat. So. It's And they said, I said, well, I don't understand because I bought a ticket. And they said, yes, but you bought an economy fare ticket. So that's why you can't have a seat, guaranteed. <laughs> so hmm. I think this is a little, a little strange. It's not that I'm getting a, pref- a preferred seat or anything like that. Uh, so, yeah, um, they told me that it's also an airport issue, not an Air Canada issue. So I thought that was weird. I said, you sold me a seat and I can't have a seat. <laughs> So,
0: yeah, that's okay. So and so just to to clarify, so you went on, you purchased the ticket, an economy ticket. But that's something I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. Everybody wants doesn't want to pay more for a seat than than you have to Um, like anybody. And then you went to check in and that's and, and you weren't able then to even to pick a seat.
1: Right. I couldn't pick a seat, and it wasn't that a, like a seat was being assigned to me or anything. I was being put on FBY, which I guess apparently means I'm standby for the flight. And so,
0: interesting. So then they said as well it was because of the economy fare. Did they explain yeah. what it meant also of
1: saying it's an airport issue? Well, no, I don't know. I just quickly said, I don't think this is an airport issue. This is a Air canada issue. Um I think she she said it's an airport issue in that you have to go to the airport mm-hmm. and wait to see if you can get a seat.
0: <laughs> Interesting. And, and so if you yeah. don't get a seat,
1: though, did they say what happens at that point? Are you supposed to just no, stay at the airport? I, I, I guess so. I asked them, I said, well, it, it, can you put me on another flight? Because it's quite a, you know, it's a later flight. So I thought, oh, okay, well, fine. Just put me on an earlier flight. And they said, no, you can't do that because... <laughs> You bought the economy ticket. I was like, okay, well, that's fair. I understand no changes. But uh, can I go on the flight that I paid for? (laughs) No, we can't guarantee that. So they really haven't said anything. I have a kid with um, autism. So I'm, you know, this is not the worst tragedy in the world that I don't have a flight home today. But I do have to let, I said, I just need to make arrangements, obviously, if I'm going to get on a flight or not. And they said, no, they couldn't help me.
0: So they couldn't even, given the uncertainty of you not knowing then if you can get on a flight today, they couldn't say, rather than you going to the airport and, and winging it, hoping to get on one, they couldn't just say, well, well, we'll put you on a flight tomorrow or give you another flight?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, none of that. Yeah, and, and even when they said, I said, is there any, fl- are there any seats? She says, well, there's a few, not many. And she said, I said, well, can I have one? <laughs> she said, no. No. <laughs>
0: If it's not an overbooked flight and there are seats, I guess, is there? are they saying that those seats were more expensive seats and that's why
1: you can't have one of those? Yeah, I don't know if they leave room or it's potentially going to be oversold. I have no idea. If they've got it on Kijiji, I have no idea.
0: <laughs> and and to be clear too, you you paid for the seat. It's not something th- that you booked on points or something like that?
1: No, no, yeah. No, just I just yeah, it's the seat. So my son goes to school here in Vancouver, I came to see him and uh yeah, like um yeah, and and you know, I flew out of Edmonton no problem, typical check-in, get a seat. Yeah. So, um this is a new this might be uh, no notification that this was a new policy or anything, but it does seem unusual.
0: So and that's strange too because I I'm assuming you bought a return ticket Edmonton to Vancouver yeah. and back to Edmonton. Yeah. And if there was yeah. no problem giving you that seat on the flight coming to Vancouver, uh, that that yeah. almost seems worse because if it had happened in the beginning then for whatever reason at least you would have been at home but now you're kind of stranded.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm the only thing I can see in the regulations for the fare is that there's no advanced seat selection for for this fair, so I was like, well, okay, but does that, which is fine if they say you have a seat, but we just can't give it to you yet, but they literally listed me as standby, so and I said, well, does that mean I'm getting a seat? Well, it just depends. Because,
0: oh. I mean, I mean uh, trying to read between the lines there, it sounds like they're saying it depends. If somebody pays a higher fare and buys those other yeah. seats, they're going to be taken. But if not, then I guess they'll
1: give you one. Right. I guess. I, I have no idea how they make that decision. She's, she's sort of a she insinuated I should I should just, you know, hope for no shows, <laughs> which hmm. I think is what. Yeah. So it's an interesting business practice. And I think I'd heard too, or or
0: I mentioned, or in Edmonton, um, you you have a job that you're going back to, and commitments yeah. and things, and and you yeah. were planning on being back there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have a, I have a job. i <laughs> I have meetings tomorrow morning, so I have an appointment tomorrow morning, uh, health appointment. I have a kid with autism who's very strict on you know when are you coming home mom? I'm coming home Thursday. Okay well when am I coming home now? I don't know. So yeah.
0: And have you tried to follow up then with Air Canada or at this point is it just following their advice going to the airport and and hoping for the best?
1: I think that's what I I got to do. I DM them on Twitter um, which was my their first advice to ask for help and um, that I didn't hear back from them and then I called them. I got through really fast, so that was good. But no, uh, so no other help. was. So, yeah, basically, I'm going to go to the airport, I guess, fairly early <laughs> and see if I can get a seat.
0: And was there anything about the way you bought the ticket? Was it through a third party or and not the Air Canada website? Or is there anything like that that maybe could help explain why this particular fair, there is no seat for
1: it? I have no, not that we can tell, because my husband and I were looking at that. So we bought it through Air Canada, right, directly from Air Canada with one of their seat sales, which they have all the time, seat sales, because we come back and forth to Vancouver quite a bit. And uh, yeah, so no, nothing, nothing saying you may not potentially, you're not guaranteed a seat.
0: Hmm. And and I'm guessing too it's and I think we've probably all done this if you buy the non-refundable the cheapest one knowing that yeah. if, if, that if you oh. have something come up and you don't make it you're forfeiting that ticket and that's yeah, it there's no sure. there's no recourse but but it's a bit different to have the airline do that.
1: Yeah, and totally you know I understand if I come to Vancouver and I go to leave and there's a massive storm I'm going to be delayed, right? Or mm-hmm. there's no pilots. Like we're, we're kind of used to the risk of, of air travel these days, but um, I, it's not a precise thing. But at the same time, this is just strictly a product of, like that they're not giving me that I paid for. So,
0: Did you offer them to pay a, a higher fare or to, yeah. to pay? Like to I pay... said,
1: can I? No, I'll pay for a preferred seat. You know, one mm-hmm. of the ones that they charge you twenty five bucks for. Um, yeah, and they said no. There's no. So I was like, okay. We'll
0: see. All right. Well, I I hope that you do get on the plane. But again, we'll follow up and see what happens with this. And we'll also reach out to Air Canada. Holly, thanks so much for joining us and for telling us about what's going on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just buyer beware.
0: (laughs) We just heard from Holly Simmons-Brown. She was supposed to be flying back to Edmonton, but has been told she's actually on standby for the ticket she purchased. This is not something that is, well, it's probably uncommon, but certainly it has happened before. And joining us to talk a little bit more about what compensation she might be able to get is Gabor Lukacs, the founder of airpassengerrights.ca. Gabor, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you again.
0: Uh, This is uh, something I think while while it's a bit surprising and certainly she thought that by purchasing the ticket, even though it was a a cheaper and economy fare, uh, she thought that that meant she would get a seat on both of the flights from Edmonton to Vancouver, Vancouver back home. Uh, What are your thoughts on the fact that she was told she's on standby and she might get a, a seat home, but she might not?
2: Well, it's not as uncommon as it may appear. The flight appears to be overbooked, and uh, under their passenger protection regulations, depending on how much you would be delayed, she would be entitled to lump sum compensation between $900 and $2,400 per passenger. So uh, I can understand it's very, maybe, surprising, but uh, it is not a case that she would necessarily be without without a, a remedy. Of course, the airline will may try to argue that somehow the overbooking is, for reasons outside its control or for safety reasons. Those type of excuses need to be scrutinized very closely and very, very carefully because we know that airlines often uh, are not all, and entirely forthright about these matters. Um, but um, from the passenger's perspective, and, and, and it will be also a question of should we need to be told the reasons, but from passenger's perspective, it may also be uh, just a good way of uh, making some money.
0: Doesn't that seem odd, though, that if she's then entitled to compensation, which is more than what she would have paid for for the economy ticket, and the airline said there are a couple of seats on the flight, but they're more expensive seats. Wouldn't it make sense then for the airline to give her the, one of those seats?
2: Well, those seats probably are already spoken for, I suspect. So just because they do show up as as possibly available in the, to, for selection, uh, it's not clear that that, that there's no uh, passenger who should be in those seats. So they may not have been assigned to specific passengers, but the airline may know we have 10 such seats and we have already 12 passengers for those seats. Mm. So um, I, I, I don't think that, as long as we accept that overbooking is an acceptable practice, and and um, that is the law in Canada, that overbooking, is a, is a legally permissible practice, then I cannot say with a good conscience, based on what I heard, at, that um, the passenger was wronged so far. Uh, if the passenger is indeed bumped from the flight, and that's I'm not sure, I didn't hear when the flight is, in a couple of coming hours or tomorrow?
0: Uh, it's um, in about six and a half hours and, from now.
2: So so I would say the passenger should go to the airport, uh reasonably well before the flight, document that they arrive at the airport on time, uh, try to get all the way to the gate, stay there at the gate and document, uh, uh, document what is happening and document that she's being denied boarding eventually, and then make sure to ask for her compensation and being rebooked on the next available flight. Possibly, on don't know the airlines, if the Air Canada cannot rebook her within nine hours on its own network
0: what about uh, for somebody hearing this then is there a way to protect yourself if by purchasing the economy fare and in this case i think it was the cheapest fare available but by purchasing one of those fares then is it possible that when you go to check in you you could at any point if if, again the flight is busy or overbooked instead of being able to pick a seat you're given uh, the status of standby
2: there's no magic protection for it uh Quite possibly, the airline may less likely to want bump business class passengers, but even that's not a given. I've heard about cases, and this is, of course, rumors and, and, and not first in evidence, uh, that a uh, passenger was bumped from their business class seat and moved into economy class because of a pilot that was supposed to be sitting in business class on dead heading home, uh, or maybe to, to to an assignment. So, um there's no guarantee here. It's, it's The way to look at it, in, in my view, is more to focus on, on okay, this happened, it's bad, now what kind of compensation can I get? How can I make uh, it it's something palatable for what happens?
0: Right, so kind of being your own advocate or making sure uh, you're asking those questions and getting the airline to explain exactly what's going on.
2: And make sure that you record your interactions with the airline. It's perfectly legal in Canada to... Uh, tape your conversation uh, and uh, you'll have to tell them that you're doing it. And just to be in a safe side, in case it goes to litigation, it's a very good practice to do that.
0: All right. Interesting advice. Gabor, thank you so much for joining us, uh, for uh, letting us know like, your thoughts on what's happening to uh, this uh, woman from Edmonton. Appreciate you joining us today.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Have you noticed that more places are asking for tips and the percentages they're asking for seem to be getting bigger and bigger? Well, if the answer is yes, you are not alone because some new research that was put out today by the Angus Reid Institute shows that Canadians are growing a little tired of tipflation. Joining us to talk more about this is Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Hi. Not a huge surprise, I'm sure, that Canadians are getting a little tired of this. Would maybe like a bit of a different system. What did you ask people? So we, first of all, we asked them, you
3: know, like, is it us or is, <laughs> does everyone notice? <laughs> that wasn't the exact question. But yes, have you noticed uh, more places than usual or in the past asking for tips? And have you noticed, yes or no, uh, the the amount is going up? And in both cases, you've got two-thirds saying not only are they noticing that they're being asked to pay more. Of course, the the conventional wisdom for the longest time was that a a traditional tip was about 15%. Uh, you know that they're being prompted for eighteen percent, twenty percent, more than twenty percent, on a on a level of frequency that that is much more often than it used to be. And then over and above that, they're being asked to tip in places where maybe they wouldn't have tipped so much. For example, um, at, at the takeout place or at the coffee shop where uh, you're getting your food to go. But uh, those point of sale machines have really created a situation where. The digital prompt for more tips more often is not going unnoticed. And, Jill, against the backdrop of a cost-of-living crisis where people are already saying they feel squeezed, they're looking for ways to reduce their discretionary spending, I think it's just that much more noticeable.
0: Uh, You asked people as well if they'd like to have a different type of system, a a service-included system, or if they were made aware that the employees maybe are being paid more, being paid a better wage. And what did you find, uh, what are people saying about that?
3: Well, there is, again, a, a high level of support for that. But what's really significant about it, Jill, is we first asked these questions about seven years ago, how time flies. So we did this poll in 2016. And at that time, people actually leaned slightly towards sticking with tipping and the tipping model. So uh, the preference was not to have a service included model, which would basically build in the cost of the the service fee or the extra money for workers into the, the bottom line of your restaurant meal or, or your your salon service or whatever it is you're paying for, um, and uh, and move to that system. At that time, Only about 40% of Canadians said, yes, we'd like to go to service included. Today, now, seven years later, that number is at 59%. And that does represent a really big jump.
0: Do you think the pandemic has anything to do with this? And that I know a lot of people, if you were in the position where you could tip more, that became a way early on to help out restaurants and to, to make a point of, of keeping restaurants, uh, keeping the lights on. And was is it something do you think that maybe it's kind of been a holdover from that? And suddenly now that's just become the norm?
3: So the pandemic is absolutely the most significant driver of why we're seeing it for all of the reasons you just laid out. And remember at that time, it was a period of time where Canadians actually had a little bit, not all, but, but many had a little bit of extra disposable income. All of a sudden we were saving money on our commutes, So your your transit fare or your gas money uh, was in your pocket if you were working from home. Uh, there was sometimes, in some cases, for some people, some amount of federal government rebate or, or help that was available. So, for people who were able to avail themselves of having a little bit of extra cash to spend, interest rates were really low, gas prices were not through the roof, grocery prices were not through the roof, um, and you had people who were working in the service industry who needed more support because they didn't have the luxury of working from home. All of that created the conditions where, from a good, intentional, good place in our hearts, we were leaning into tipping more. What has happened is that everybody is feeling more squeezed as a result of rising prices, uh, particularly in the food service or the restaurant industry, where prices have just gone up because food is more expensive into and of itself. And then on top of that, the plus, plus, plus of not only a tip, but in many cases, a higher level tip. This is where, you know, the, the crunch is really occurring.
0: And just looking at the numbers of people that are strongly agreeing with a couple of statements that too many places are asking for tips and tipping is no longer about showing appreciation that it's considered almost, well, it is considered, I think, mandatory in some cases. I mean, 83% and 78%, that's a huge number.
3: Those are huge numbers. And they they correlate very strongly with some other really big findings out of that, which is that People, uh, A majority of people feel that tipping is now a way for employers to subsidize their workers uh, and, and not pay them uh, a livable, reasonable wage. They, they download that back onto the cost of the consumer. Uh, and also that people, you know, going back to the original or the, 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 the conventional wisdom around the original purpose of tipping, which is appreciation for good service, a majority are also saying, look, we haven't noticed service getting better. We just noticed that we're tipping more for the service that we used to have or or maybe in some cases for worse service in the face of a lot of labour shortages as well.
0: What did you find then as well? Because I think it's also changing on where people are being asked to tip and maybe things you might not have thought of before. Suddenly now you're being prompted. And I know you asked people, who are Canadians tipping? So who who are we OK with tipping there are some
3: really interesting gender divides on that one, and I think it really speaks to the lived experience of where we spend our money. So, for example, men will say that they're more likely to tip their bartender. Uh, women are more likely to tip the person at uh, the hair salon or their stylist. Um, I think that there there are some some classes of service worker who Um, traditionally have been tipped, however, are not being tipped as much as they used to be, maybe because we're, we're having those services less. So I've always felt it's really important to tip the hotel housekeeper. That's just my thing. I travel a lot for work. And these are often these tiny, tiny ladies who are, like, lifting mattresses and clearing all the, the hair out of your shower stall. Like, that lady deserves a tip. But most
0: people don't tip the hotel housekeeper. No, I, You know, you make an excellent point. I even make sure I tip the first night to make sure that, because that, that, that is the most important person you're going to encounter if you're staying at a hotel. And I always feel like you need to make sure that person knows that you appreciate them. Absolutely. And and
3: those are tough jobs. Not to say that other service industry jobs are not tough, but, you know, in the continuum of toughness, full confession, I went into uh, a bakery the other day that had a takeout place as well as a sit down area. I was in that business for, I would say, less than 30 seconds, walked in, pointed at a pastry, uh, bought the pastry, walked out, did a European tip, which was rounding up to the next dollar level as opposed to tipping 25%. And, oh, my God, did I get the dirty look. I admit it. I didn't do it, and I got the dirty look. So the shame factor, I think, for consumers is also somewhat yeah.
0: So where do you think, and, and I know you ask people how much is enough, and again, who they, people believe should be tipped. But, but like you said, too, it's been creeping up and up and up. I mean, there's got to be a point where the tip can't be 100%. It can't be doubling the cost of going out or doing these things.
3: Well, and to the point where we're now finding, particularly with younger people for whom, you know, cost of living, cost of housing is an even bigger squeeze than it is for people, say, over the age of 45 or 50, um, that they are saying that they're going out less now because of not just the cost of a night out, but the cost of tipping involved in a night out. Uh, and, and to your point, the you know, where, where does it end? How much higher can it go? I think... Um, businesses will will report all of this to you know what is the no pun intended tipping point in this situation because at some point people just they don't have that extra money if they have that experience and and it, and it is onerous for them or too much they're just not going to go out again. Now, I know that a lot of restaurant owners also say, look, if we move away from tipping, um, it means that we're, we're declaring a higher level of revenue by increasing our prices. So actually, we're just ending up paying more tax. It doesn't necessarily go into the pockets of the worker. And also that for a lot of those workers, that money is is tax-free uh, because in sometimes it's not declared. So in those situations, you know what? What are the knock-on effects, or the other side of moving the service included? And I think it's why you've seen a lot of businesses maybe not adopt it, but but consumers themselves are saying, "Look, uh, you know, we're throwing up our hands here. This is this is a lot."
0: And uh, not surprised uh, by that at all. But yeah, some uh, pretty pretty strong numbers in this research, Shachi. We'll leave it there. But thanks, as always, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. We're talking now about a case that involves a ruling from a provincial court judge. And the judge in this case has ordered that a dog be put down, partly because the dog's owner does not have a home herself. And joining us to talk about this case is Victoria Shroff, an animal law lawyer. Victoria, thank you so much for being with us. Yes. Thanks, Joe. This reminded me a little bit uh, of a story we talked about years ago about uh, a dog named Punky, although there are obviously some differences here. But can you tell us a little bit your thoughts? This is a provincial court judge who has found the dog in question who is named Cujo, uh, uh, perhaps an unfortunate name, but uh, this dog is named Cujo, uh, has a history, has been in a shelter for a very long time, uh, has apparently tried to bite the kennel workers a couple of times. But the ruling also has to do with the fact that Cujo's owner is homeless. Can can you tell us a bit about your thoughts after seeing the facts of this case?
4: Right. Well, um, you know, Jill, we've talked many times about um, dangerous dogs, which I, I say in air quotes, because what we're really looking at is we're really looking at human behavior for a large part of these cases. And so unpacking um, human aspects of these these uh, situations is really important. And in this case, as you rightly point out um, the woman being precariously housed was a really big impact here in the case. Um, um, uh, Honor judge Lee said the owner of Cujo has stated she cannot restrain Cujo as she is homeless. And that's what, you know, was written in the judgment. So that was part of it. And it feeds into the bylaw about, Humans having to have control over their dogs for public safety. So, so what it works as this there there's sort of two things. So there's um, dangerous dogs and the legislation that's um, basically under the community charter, um, and that's that's defining a dog one way. And then there's also uh, the fact that the city can seize a dog um, if um, a, an owner is um, a, has an aggressive dog. And they are to keep them securely confined. Um, so, so this is part of the idea that the balancing that we've talked about when we talked about the Punky Santos case about um, the public safety and human responsibility. Um, so that that feeds in here for sure. The, the sociological aspects of this case are, are very relevant.
0: And in in this ruling, the judge talked about the fact that uh, because this the owner Cujo's owner lives in uh, an encampment, I think, or lives in an outdoor campsite, doesn't have a permanent address. That uh, city officials in uh, this is the city of Port Coquitlam, animal control officers several times found this dog running at large, and and that was uh, cited as part of the the information that led to him. To to make this ruling, uh, so is it reasonable? Do you think that the judge has ruled this, or could there be another solution?
4: Well, I, you know, I mean, you know, from speaking with me, and and I always hope that there will be other solutions other than euthanasia, except in the most extreme circumstances. What I'd like to see here is um, the fact that actually there was no expert in this case including a veterinarian expert as far as i can see from reading the judgment um, leads me to believe that there may be a situation where this dog could be rehomed um is that a possibility um you know there there was counsel on both sides in this case i I noted that as well um but i'm just wondering i always think you know killing an animal has to be the extreme last resort and if there's a chance at rehabilitation or management uh, with muzzles and things like that. Um, that would be, I think, a, a much better outcome if that's possible. I don't know all the circumstances. I was not counsel in this case. Um, and I haven't spoken to any of the litigants. Um, I understand that um, that Cujo was ordered destroyed, but that the, the court um, basically said that they were going to hold off until the end of February in case there is an appeal. Um, but... You know, the court was satisfied on a balance of probabilities that that Cujo would be likely to kill or injure in the future. And I think that's where that's where the court was coming from in this case.
0: And looking at Cujo's past as well and the court ruling, it talks about the fact that one of the times when Cujo was out and about, a woman who had a leash tried to to catch him, uh, but he dragged her and she, she was hurt slightly. She was kind of bruised and scratched. But the actual in- incidents where Cujo was was lunging at people or tried to bite people was in the kennel and he's been in that kennel since August of I think it was 2021, which is a really long time. How do you how do you or can you separate, do you think, what this dog was like before and and his behavior now, if it's also because this dog's been living in a kennel?
4: I think I actually think that's a really good point and it's something that I thought about as well and I just think to myself and I've spoken about this with media in the past and I think you know the opportunity of trying to rehabilitate a dog while they are confined is is a really good idea unfortunately that doesn't happen and when when dogs are incarcerated for that length of time they're they're obviously going to deteriorate mentally and physically there's just no question that being in a concrete cell um, day in day out, uh, without um, their human uh, to live with or to be around, is extremely hard. And what we see is that we see that you know being in a long term confinement is just going to make what might have been uh, borderline bad behavior a lot worse in in, in humans and in, in animals. I mean, this is why it's an opportunity. I think while dogs are in in lockup, to to have them retrained to work with trainers to also get a vet visit to make sure that there may not be something going on chemically with that dog. Um, But I don't see any veterinary evidence um, having been called in this case. And to me, that's concerning.
0: Yeah. Right, right, and 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 looking at as well too, there were a couple of other incidents at the shelter where uh, a worker was was a bit in the on the hand. Uh, another uh, attempt apparently where the dog lunged at a worker and, and was able to tear through a shirt. And and then uh, one of the courtyards at the shelter, uh, workers saying that uh, the, that Cujo bit her on the hand. Can you rehabilitate a dog that has that has that history and that track record? I believe you
4: can. I mean, this is what we've seen in the past is that, you know, I mean, maybe not necessarily fully to rehabilitate, but you can still keep the public safe by muzzling and having fences. I mean, when we do, uh, the majority of the dangerous dog cases that we end up doing don't go to court because agreements can be made outside of court for how to manage that dog. So uh, a six-foot fence can go a very long way with a secure lock as the muzzling um, uh, of the dog whenever they're outside of the house and also gates within the house so that, for example, an unexpected visitor to the house would not be um, in the line of any kind of uh, fear-based reactionary behavior. But as I say constantly, it's the behavior on both sides of the leech. So we need to be looking at how the dogs are treated by the human and then seeing how that behavior impacts how the dog then will behave with the public. And there's uh, a lot of lessons can be unpacked from these cases.
0: And if rehoming was an option, how realistic though is it do you think that somebody will look at the history and even just the the bit we've talked about here from this court case that somebody's going to look at the history of this dog and be willing to take this dog on? Well, you know, I think if a dog is assessed. Like, as far as I can see, I haven't seen an assessment
4: on this dog by an expert. And then I would take my guidance from the expert um, on animal behavior, and that would be a veterinarian, in my view. Um, And then see whether or not, for example, maybe this dog needs something of equivalent of of Ativan that they give people that will help calm the dog down. But seeing as the incidents happen while the dog was confined in a high-stress environment, maybe that had a huge part to play in this um, in the incidents that happened in the kennels. So it's sort of hard to say without the expert. Um, you know, I can tell you where the law is, but I can't tell you about um, the animal's behavior from an expert's point of view.
0: Sure. Do you think though it was the right choice? Or as far even though this dog has been ordered destroyed, that there is still a window where there could potentially be an appeal?
4: I think there is. I mean, until until while that dog is still drawing breath there still could
0: be a chance all right victoria we'll leave it there for today but thanks so much as always thanks for joining us to talk more about this pleasure joe if you have ever watched anything by comedian pete holmes either his podcast or shows this will be familiar to you
5: i haven't seen the wire what there's no good way to tell people you haven't seen the wire look this guy's on my corner i'm just asking you how, how do i handle that
4: not a line. I mean, I'll call ahead and say, you know, get a reservation. No,
5: that's not the situation. Sure, Here's sure. the situation. Yes, yes, Moshe, Kasher answer. and yes, Natasha Leggero are waiting in a and I cut them. You walk in and they go, yeah. "Miss Handler."
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: And you, they remove Moshe's drink yes. from the table. Especially
0: them. I'd cut them twice. Those two. <laughs> For sure. All right, that was Pete Holmes. First, uh, a little snippet from his HBO show that uh, was called Crashing and also his very popular podcast called You Made It Weird. Well, he is joining us now to talk about those things as well as his performance, which is coming up as part of Just for Laughs Vancouver. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. You are coming to Vancouver as part of the Just for Laughs comedy shows. We'll talk a little bit more about where people can see you. But Let's talk a little bit about what you have been doing and a bit about your past. People might know you from the show Crashing. They might know your podcast. Uh, tell us a bit about what which one of those you like the best.
5: <laughs> I guess that's a little bit like picking between your children, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I, it's interesting when people are fans of the podcast, which is called You Made It Weird, I do catch myself sort of ranking that as, as the truest fan because that means they spend lots and lots and lots and lots of time uh, together. Um, listening to the show comes out every Wednesday and Friday. So that is a very steady diet of, of my comedy and my brain for ten, over 10 years now. So that is that is like what I would consider one of the truest fans. And then there are the people that just know crashing. And then there are the people that have no idea who I am whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll sort of take what I can get. And and then I guess there's another category, which is people that know me as a stand up. And then there's another group that sort of know me as we did these series of Batman videos on YouTube that were very popular. And I, I get that from time to time as well. But when when I do a date like this, a stand up show, it's nice to see, you know, all of those groups merging together into into one audience.
0: Well, you mentioned crashing, and I'm sure there are people that well, not in the the group that has no idea who you are, but there will be people hearing this that watched (laughs) that show. Uh, I've heard it or I've seen it described as semi autobiographical. Uh, How close is the character in crashing to you?
5: Um, it was very close. It was it was sort of like a version of myself that I was when I was like 28, 27, 28. So I remember when we were shooting the show going back to that version of myself, which was just a little bit more naive, um, a little bit sweeter. I I think I'm still a sweet person. But like you was very, very sweet Um, was kind of a a vacation for me. Mm -hmm. I liked I liked visiting that side of my personality and just being really earnest and uh, simple Um, because obviously growing up and and learning different things and having different things happen makes your personality a little bit more complicated or to be honest, a lot more nuanced and interesting, but it was fun to go back and just be that, that simple, sweet boy. But it was, it was based um, very, very closely on my life and what happened in my life and If I was to explain what the show is about, it's about how things that we don't want to happen, like what we call bad things, are often exactly the things you need to happen um, to grow into the person you're supposed to become.
0: And when you think of uh, perhaps role models or comedians, actors that you look up to, I know you've worked a lot. uh, You worked with Conan O'Brien. You worked with Judd Apatow. If I was to ask who you respect and admire, who would you say?
5: You know, that's an interesting question. I've never gotten that phrase exactly that way, and I, I, I think it's a generous question. I, the people that I admire aren't... When I was in my 20s, it would have been the people that were, you know, killing it, you know, mm-hmm. doing the most things, um, making probably, you know, that's code for making a lot of money, having a lot of success, having a lot of fame, having a lot of fans. Those were very interesting things to me. And now that I've been doing it for over 20 years... Um, and this has been true for probably the past five, six, seven years. My interest has shifted to who has the most balance, um, who, who has something in their life other than comedy. You know, like who can be quiet, who can enjoy time alone or time with their family or, or time with their friends where they're not talking about show business or thinking about themselves or thinking about some work project. Because there's a real pitfall, because my job is interesting, and I, I'm very interested by my job, um, it's very tempting to, to work all the time. And it's hard to have a conversation that you aren't also running a program that it's just very natural to, to run, which is like, how can I turn this into a movie? Or how can I turn this into a TV show? Or, or how can I turn this into a joke? Or how can I turn this into a, a cartoon I would draw? And, all that stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it gets a little out of hand. Um, and the reason I say my job is interesting, it's still at the end of the day, you are just a person who really only you run a risk of only having one relationship, which is your relationship to your work, but it looks a little bit cooler because it's creative work, but it's still your work. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So the people that I admire the most are the people that are able to unplug, um, have authentic relationships, have things that are outside of themselves that they care about more than themselves and put up those, those boundaries on their work. Like maybe I'm not gonna tour every single weekend or I'm not gonna say yes to every little thing because I have a depravity mindset and I'm always afraid of falling out of you know, <laughs> the limelight or they're not posting on social media 15 times a day. Uh, and they're not obsessed with being on some celebrity Big Brother show just to stay a little bit more relevant. Those are my heroes now, whereas when I was starting, I, I, would have, I, I wouldn't have expected that, that that would become my perspective. But I'm glad that I, I learned the things that I did that made that my perspective.
0: Well, And when you say, too, that, that you've been doing it for more than 20 years, how do you feel still today just before you go out on that stage to do stand-up?
5: It's still exciting, it's, it's your, your body, your nervous system will never fully um, get uh, comfort, completely comfortable, meaning it'll never be nothing. Um, you might not perceive it, like it might not come to the surface of my awareness that I'm, I wouldn't say like I'm nervous, but there's, a, there's an adrenalizing feeling that if you don't get that feeling, if you don't get a little bit of butterflies, that actually makes you nervous. You're nervous that you're not nervous. Um, hey, baby. Hi, baby. My daughter yeah. just came in the room. Aw. Um, yeah, <laughs> speaking of balance, but, but, so I just did a show two nights ago. Here, go to mama, baby, go to mama. It's okay. I did a show a couple nights ago and my friend, Kurt, who's visiting from Michigan is here with us. And he noticed that, like, so many of the comedians backstage, they're not overtly nervous. Like, if you were playing charades and the Clue was nervous, no one would act how the comedians are acting, you know. They're not, like, chattering or pacing or biting their nails or anything like that. But there is a heightened, like, I'm here to do a thing. And your body and your, your mind are becoming incited. And that's good. You want that. So the, the bad shows that I have or the shows that, that, you know, maybe the audience enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like get into the place I wanted to get into is usually because I was a little too relaxed. Um, so that's what, you know, <laughs> you got to get into that heightened fight or flight state a little bit to do your job.
0: All right. Well, I know many, many people are looking forward to seeing you on the 19th, when you're going to be playing in Vancouver as part of Just for Laughs. Before I let you go, I just have one other question, and it has to do with Jeopardy. And I think you've been a Jeopardy Mm -hmm. clue twice now? Yes. And, and that's the, true the, the most recent one it was a picture of you and none of the contestants knew who you were was what did, did you see that
5: yeah, I did <laughs> they were in the third category that I was saying and you know <laughs> uh, it's that that's what I'm talking about with balance actually it's like it's great to be a jeopardy clue but it's also great to have the simultaneous humbling that nobody knew who you were, <laughs> even with a photograph. And that that might sound false, but you want both. I actually like, it's a funnier place to live. It's a more sincere place to live, to get a thrill like that, but also to be like, but don't take yourself too seriously. None of these people who have a mind for trivia <laughs> could hold on to your name. So that, that was a nice moment for me. Plus, my parents watch Jeopardy every night. So to have something that they're watching that I'm on that I, I didn't like tell them was on, you know, that's always fun. My dad said he fell out of his chair.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, Pete, I've taken up more of your time than I I planned to, but thank you so much for doing this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know people are, are looking forward to the great show that you'll be putting on. So thank you again so much.
5: Yeah, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it as well.